My name is Dr Sandra Collins. I'm the director of the National Library of Ireland. So we're really thrilled that Neil Jordan decided to give his archive to the National Library. First of all, you're amazed that anybody's interested, you know, but they plainly are. I'm grateful that somebody will keep them all in the one place, which the National Library have said they would, you know, so I'm just thrilled about that and honoured, I might add. He's a really important national creator, a figure of artistic merit that's recognised across the world. And all the awards that he's won and Oscars and uh, prizes for his writing, like I, I suppose, are just a demonstration of that. For us in the National Library, capturing and keeping safe that Irish story is really essential. Anybody who wants to access my work or research my work or see how bad or how good or how confused the germination of the stuff I've done is, they can find it out here. If they're again, if they're interested, yeah. But so I'm kind of thrilled about that. I mean, writing is hard work. Any, any strategy I can devise to avoid it, I'll find it. You know. I suppose books to me are, you know, a kind of a certain release from the plot. I mean, movies are all plots, aren't they? What happens next? What happens here? What happens there? And I suppose maybe when I come to write a book. I feel released from that. The, the, the most frustrating thing about it is you never quite know when you're finished, you know. I kind of find myself waiting for the book to tell me what it wants to be. I was living in Dublin in Marino. I was working in CIE, I think. Maybe I was unemployed, probably a bit of both. I started writing stories, I think, around 23. I'd finished a collection of them, and I lost them on a bus, actually. The 30 bus used to go from Clontarf into Centre Town, you know, and, and uh, I just left them on the bus, and, and I lost the whole lot. I had to rewrite the whole lot again, which was A Night in Tunisia, yeah. I had all sorts of handwritten notes and all that, so I, I managed to put them together again and probably maybe improving them. You know, I was working at a building site in London and I used to go to this public baths. It was the only place I could have, have, have a bath because I lived in a squat or something, I think. And it was this extraordinary kind of bare experience, you know. You paid, you got a little chit and you walked into a place and you put your clothes in a little basket and you showered, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And there, were, there was kind of anonymous bodies all around the place. Last rites. One white hot Friday in June at some minutes after five o'clock, a young builder's labourer crossed an iron railway overpass just off the Harrow Road. The day was faded now, and the sky was a curtain of haze. But the city still lay hard-edged and agonisingly bright in the day's diminished heat. The labourer, as he crossed the overpass, took note of its regulation shade of green. He saw an old, old Negro immigrant standing motionless in the shade of a red brick wall. Opposite the wall, in line with the overpass, he saw the Victorian facade of Kensal Rise Baths. Perhaps because of the heat, or because of a combination of the heat and his temperament, these impressions came to him with an unusual clarity, as if he had seen them in a film, or in a dream, and not in real waking life. Within the hour, he would take his own life. And it surprised me it was so black, but I think 
You know, people's first works are often black, you know, very, very, very dark. They are very autobiographical, you know, they're, they're almost like confessional in a way. And um, you try to disguise yourself, you know, you invent kind of persona that are, are you and not you, so you get yourself off the hook in that way. My name is Nadine O'Regan. I'm the books and arts editor of the Sunday Business Post. I first started reading Neil Jordan's work many years ago. I probably first came across his prose uh, through the medium of short stories. He published Night in Tunisia back in 1976, actually, when he was a young man. I think at that time he was probably doing what most young authors do. Uh, he was working in a solid Irish tradition. There was a Joycean feel from those stories, and they were very, very strong and an indicator of the, the writer he would become. It was obvious he had great talent. Well, my name is Christian Dwarhickey. I'm an Irish writer and when I started out, Neil Jordan already was well established as both a writer and a filmmaker. What I think he did mainly for Irish writers coming after him was that he gave people the courage to try different things because even though he writes in an Irish landscape and particularly an Irish seascape, the themes are not necessarily Irish. You could write about anything, they're universal concerns. And also you realise that you didn't have to be old and you didn't have to be wise, like, say, Liam O'Flaherty or Mary Lavin, that you could, as a writer, flounder a bit and your characters could flounder and you didn't have to be certain all the time. So I think in that way he changed the, the, the landscape of Irish writing. Night in Tunisia is the title of a, a tune by Charlie Parker. On soir en Tunis. It's set in Mosny, it's set in the environments of Mosny. If you remember Mosny, it's a crappy little holiday town with strange artificial swan-like boats and kind of an indoor pool with, with a big, big uh, glass kind of um, frontage where people could sit and eat chips and watch other people swimming. And... It's about adolescence and sexuality and all kind of musical sounds that affect a uh, that affect a kid growing up he imagines childhood falling from him coming off his palms like scales from a fish he didn't look up he looked down at his fingers that were forming hard coats of skin at the tips It's also about the relationship between a boy and his father. And his father is a saxophone player in one of these old bands. And uh, his father found his world as being replaced by rock and roll, you know, which he loathes and doesn't understand. He wants the kid, his boy, to share his musical interests and his musical world, and the boy refuses. He took it down, placed it on the table, and opened the case. He looked at the keys, remembering the first lessons his father taught him when it was new bought months ago. The keys unpressed, mother of pearl on gold, spotted with dust. He took out the ligature and fixed the reed in the mouthpiece. He put it between his lips, settled his fingers and blew. The note came out harsh and childish, as if he'd never learnt. He heard a shifting movement in the inside room and knew that he had woken his father. You were playing, his father said in the living room, in shirt sleeves, in uncombed afternoon hair. The alto, no, 
he said, going to the front door. You were dreaming. In many ways, it's about the relationship between myself and my own father. But my own father was a teacher. He didn't play the saxophone, he played the violin. And we used to always go to symphony concerts together in the Francis Xavier Hall. And I always remember it very clearly when I no, no longer wanted to go to these musical things because, you know, we had, we had a quite a strong musical connection, myself and my father. I just lost interest in entirely in it entirely, you know, maybe the age of 12 or 13. You know, when you kind of drift away from your parents' world and you want to hang around with kids and you want to, you know, make girlfriends and you want to do all those things that you cannot talk about. He forgot the raft and the games of pontoon and the thin boy's jargon. He stayed inside for days and laboriously transferred every combination of notes he had known on the piano onto the metal keys. He fashioned his mouth round the reed until the sounds he made became a power of speech, a speech that his mouth was the vehicle for, but that sprang from the knot of his stomach, the crook of his legs. He's a very visual writer. When you're reading his, his work, on impact, the words turn into images and the images stay in your head so that I still have images in my head years later. I think in all his work, there's a, a mood that's particular to the story or the novel. Um, I mean, you'll get a dream of a beast and there's the tension and that, that ap- the atmosphere within it that immediately, almost immediately, you know that you're going into some place you've never been before and you're not sure if you're going to like it, but you're, you, you can't help yourself from going. So it, it's his ability with words to paint almost with words to paint images and for those images to stay within you. And then there's the poetry within it. The poetry is there. It's an undercurrent. And that seems to be something that holds up a style. It, it's very particular to him and it changes with each story, with each novel. Uh, he's, he's, he's a hugely talented writer. Of course, there's his love of the Gothic. There's his attention to detail. There's his um, amazing sense of the supernatural, which creeps in at the edges of the picture in almost every scene he describes. He loves to suggest that there's another world there, a world that we can't see, a world populated by angels or demons or hands pulling you into the depths of the water. I wrote a book called The Dream of the Beast because I had just made Company of Wolves, I think, with Angela Carter. You know, that was an exploration of, you know, all the possibilities of horror and fairy stories, fairy tales, you know. The hot air seemed to enclose the crowds in a continuous bubble of movement. They arched their bodies, embraced, cued, made talk and love against the peeling brick. They seemed to glory for a few brief moments in the heat, in the sense of lost time and future. At the time I suffered from terrible psoriasis, actually. It was terrible. Yeah, like a skin condition off my face. Yeah, I don't know what it was. My marriage was breaking up at the time, I remember very clearly. And... Myself and my wife at the time were about to separate. Maybe it was a huge amount of stress, but I used to feel like an animal. I used to feel like people were, you know, kind of, you know, kind of revolted to be close to me or to touch me or anything like that, you know. The skin of my person was being shed to usher in a new season, a new age. It would peel off me slowly and inexorably as if pulled by a giant hand. So I wrote this 
strange book called The Dream of a Beast about a, about a, uh, a man who was turning into an animal that he didn't recognize, you know? Strange warmth rose from the whole of my body. I felt a dry rustle on my forearms and heard a soft fall on the floor as if innumerable flakes were drifting downwards. I imagined them on the metal in an untidy pile. They would be swept away on the return journey, perhaps by that porter with the water spray. He would drown these shards of me without a thought. It, again, it expresses things that, you know, it goes to the places that other things don't go, you know, horror and fantasy do. Uh, it was that kind of story, but it was written as a piece of phantasmagoric fiction. Yeah. Wandering around Dublin in a really hot summer. My skin's flaking off me. <laughs> and, but this character turns into a fully-fledged creature. and he's no, His main problem is he doesn't know what creature it is. He's not a wolf, he's not a, an ant. He's kind of more like a reptile. There's something going on in his spine. He's developing a tail. Anger, pity, love, hate... The names we give our emotions signify a separateness, a purity that is in fact rarely the case. I walked again along the buckling tracks. The sea was leaden today, like a pit of salt, with only a little mist. Shade is uh, Neil Jordan's fifth novel and the story does centre on Nina who's a ghost who uh, tells us from the outset that she was recently murdered by her childhood friend George. I know exactly when I died. It was 20 past three on the 14th of January of the year 1950. An afternoon of bright unseasonable sunlight with a whipping wind that scurried the white clouds through the blue sky above me and gave the Irish sea beyond more than its normal share of white horses. Even the river had its full complement of white. It was a rare wind, I knew from my childhood by that river, that I would mould the waves of runnels of white foam. But it was a rare wind that day. It has this really catchy opener, you know, George killed me with his gardening shears, the ones with which he trimmed the expansive lawn, hedge and garden that descended towards the mud flats and tributaries of the Boyne River. He held the shears to my neck in the glass house and opened a moon-like gash on my throat. My last sight was of his blood-spattered watch on his thick wrist. Time ended for me then, but nothing else did. That's such a Jordan way to begin a novel. And you would imagine in the hands of another novelist that, of course, we would get almost like a Jeffrey Eugenides style broad narrative at that point or Donna Tartt. There'd be this huge storytelling, but actually it becomes something much more dreamlike and the ghost and the mystic and the sense of doubling all rear their head again as Jordan paints a far more, I guess, hazy and dreamlike novel than we might expect given that very impactful opening. Mistaken. I was his lost soul, his other, and ultimately his ghost. The fact that we looked like each other was not entirely relevant, since the shapes we present to the world at 14, say, and at 40, are so different that any of us might be two different people. Let me put it this way. If I was mistaken for him, then from time to time he obviously could be mistaken for me. So it became a long waltz of mutual confusion. 
There was a sick kind of fun to it, which we both shared. It's probably the most personal book I've written, actually, mistaken, because when I was young, I had a very strange feeling once. I actually, this, this might sound absurd, but I actually saw myself on a bus, yeah? I was on the 30 bus used to go from Dollymount into town. When I left home and set up in a house in Merino, it was on, along the 30 bus route, yeah? And I remember one day, I was upstairs on the bus, I was getting off, you know? I was walking down, and the bus guy I remembered from when I was a kid. I remember getting off the bus and looking upstairs, and I got the distinct impression that I saw myself sitting on the top of the bus. Yeah, If you ever see yourself from behind the mirror, you know, you see the way your hair is, the, the coat was exactly the same, everything, the way this figure sat was exactly the same. And I thought, oh, God, that's... But it was a younger me, slightly younger. I began to wonder, sitting there, waiting for a glimpse of him as the morning sun streaked through the square. Were we the same person, the light and shade of the same person? Was I a dream that he dreamt, a darker form of himself from a subtly different background? Was I the part of him he kept at bay, suppressed, that he needed but could never admit to? Or was he a dream I dreamt? Was he the dream of the life I wanted? Had I conjured him out of the shards of my pathetic background? Was his the life I should have had, but hadn't the courage to grasp? I almost had to resist the urge to get back on the bus and sit beside this person that I imagined was me and say, look, okay, you're going to do this and you're going to do that. This is going to happen to you and that's going to happen to you. Don't walk down that road, but maybe walk down this road. You know, that kind of thing. And your whole life could have been different, you know. And it was a strange feeling. And it was obviously a nonsensical feeling, but I think it's a feeling a lot of people have. It was a very familiar one too, you know feeling that there's another there, that there's some other version of you. And I think a lot of people do have that sense that there's another version of themselves that did not do what they did, you know, but actually took a far more adventurous path or a far more sensible path or a darker path or a far more more braver path. Do you understand what I mean? But a different one. And that's what Mistaken was about. You know, something else takes the place of the child that was there. I I mean, I did write about it late, much, much later last year in that novel Carnivalesque, you know, again in a kind of metaphorical way. Carnivalesque. It looked like any other carnival, but of course it wasn't. The boy saw it from a car window, the tops of the large trailer rides over the parked trains by the railway tracks. He walked through the entrance to Burley's amazing hall of mirrors and could see a small squat version of himself coming towards him. He realised for the first time the glass was mottled. Those little silvery bits, those mirrored cracks were all over his hands, his shirt, his face, everything that was him. And the thing that wasn't him was there, outside the mirror, staring back. And the thing that was not Andy walked outside to be swept up in his mother's arms. And he was in the mirror now. Water and light on water and the feel of water and so many of his stories and his novels end at water. It's ever present, the sea. It's, it's, it's in everything he does. In The Drowned Detective, there's a scene where the detective decides to jump into the river. Um, Now, in ways he's saving a girl who's also jumped, but it feels appropriate 
that the two of them would just decide mid-novel to do that. Because in Jordan's world, he's always telling you that there's something beyond, uh, something that we can't quite see or touch, but that it's there and it's calling you. He was born by the sea and lived later on, by the, always lived by the sea, and, and to this day he lives by the sea. That um, vacant time that he had, developing his imagination, thinking, looking at the sea. And I think the movement of the sea, the rhythms, the light, is something that, on the one hand, clears the mind, but on the other hand, allows for um, the imagination to develop. Mr. Solomon wept. Mr. Solomon then stopped looking at the people and looked at the sea. He took the cigarette from his mouth, inhaled and replaced it again. The sea looked dark blue to him, the colour of midnight rather than of midday. And though it looked flat and indolent and hot, its blueness was clear and sharp, a sharpness emphasised by the occasional flurry of white foam, the slight swell far out. Mr. Solomon knew these to be white horses, but today they reminded him of a lace, lace he imagined around a woman's throat, a swelling bosom underneath, covered in a navy cloth. He saw her just under the sea, just beneath the film of glass blue. It's a remarkable thing that he can manage to have such a body of work in two completely different fields. He has eight books, I think, published, I believe, seven novels, one collection of short stories, and I, I don't know how many films, but most of those he's written as well and directed. They're two, they're completely different lives because, I mean, a writer's life is a very lonely life. It takes a different sort of courage. You have to go on your own into a room and you have to really dig deep emotionally and even physically it can take it out of you. Whereas uh, the, with a film, it's more collaborative. But you're responsible, wholly responsible for your work yourself when you're a writer. And he has to switch from one to the other. I would love to see him doing more fiction, I have to say, because I think he is one of our most talented writers. I think Neil Jordan is a great talent, but he struggles in today's world somewhat because we live in a world now dominated by PR, by press interviews, by junkets. And fundamentally, to my mind at least, he seems a shy man, a, a great talent, but someone who knows his own mind and doesn't necessarily want to go and play the pure game. How will people reflect on his work in years to come? Honestly, I think they might feel he's somewhat underrated. His films have been so highly regarded. They've been such huge successes that his work in fiction has often been seen as a diversion for him, something to do while he's between films. And I think that's actually very unfair. I think if he were only writing novels where his first job was to be a novelist and an author, I feel like he would be more likely to be on the podium for, for more prizes. I think it's just purely because he's been so successful in film that he's been a little bit overlooked in his fictional world. World after world passes the follower by and he or she has one ear out for those snatches of contingent lives with eye always on the subject, generally beyond hearing. You fall into an observant lull, the kind of peace that a child has when it plays in a lonely sandpit. You forget yourself, 
your name, your anxieties and cares. You immerse yourself entirely in that other, that thing that is not you, that walks these city streets with a purpose, a destiny, a home, a family, a lover, all of which it may be your duty to discover. Of course, come on, anybody who says they, they don't care what people think about their work is lying. You know, of course, you, you want to be understood and you want to, you, you know, you, you come up with things that are meant to engross people and take them to another place and they're meant to, you know, satisfy them. And if people say, sorry, I didn't like this, or it didn't satisfy me, it's, of course, you want to be liked, you know. But, you, I mean, it's out of your control. You can't dictate what people feel about what you write, you know. Sometimes they think you're all hot. You say, okay, maybe it's true, I am all hot, but this is what I do. If people get tired of what I'm doing, you know, of course, tell me, you know, and if I can stop, I will, you know, but, you know, till my hands are chopped off, I find it very difficult to stop, you know. Someday someone will say, look, we don't want your movies anymore. Thank you very much, it's been good, but we just don't want to see them, Neil. You know, so maybe that's why I keep writing as well, because I suspect at some, some stage it'll just be me and a, and a desk and a typewriter. <laughs>